Today we're going to pick up where we left off last time I was together with you, so it's been a few weeks. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the Word of God, which uh, not surprisingly has a lot to say about specific ways that wealth is given to us by the Lord. And this is really our topic. We've landed in Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Those two chapters go together, very topical and oriented around Paul's observation of the churches of Macedonia when he uh, went there. Uh, and as he observed what was going on in the church, he no doubt was astounded at the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people who were very, very much under pressure and really didn't have much, but became, it was so important to Paul that it became the, the illustration that he took a snapshot and put it in the Word as the Holy Spirit led him along so that we could see what that looks like. Now, when we read the first few cha- uh, verses there, we recognized that this is a whole nother level of understanding of material wealth and how we're supposed to be used. And so it, uh, it was, it, it bore then going back and laying a foundation uh, which the Apostle Paul no doubt laid in the 18 months he was with them in Corinth, so that you would understand how it's possible to get to that point, because we're so messed up about material things and and consumed with with money and, and, and those things that it brings, that it's very hard to align ourselves back biblically. So my desire really for you was, in the time, take a pause in Second Corinthians 8 and 9 and move into some some uh, undergirding, if you will, so that you understand how this all comes about and what it's supposed to look like. And so these uh, these passages in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 have a lot to do with material things and how uh, how we're supposed to use them. And we see that the Word gives us a lot of those uh, underpinnings that can allow us to understand how that works. So now we're going to look at ways the Word actually endorses spiritual instructions for the material world where God is clear about how material things come. That's where we left off last time. And we started with the main ways taught in the Bible, and we didn't finish them because we ran out of time, mostly given the fact that uh, there was a number of common, a lot of commentary on my part uh, that some of what we see going on in our culture right now can really trace its roots to policy which allows people to draw on unneeded welfare. And able-bodied people who don't have to work thus have a lot of time to live an undisciplined life that we saw in Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. And so as you see these huge crowds, understand that many of those are fueled by and the undisciplined life that you see manifested is fueled by an ability to not have to work and to be provided an income by lots of other people, which gives you lots of free time. And the scriptures are very, very clear about that, that that leads to an undisciplined life and people running around doing things they shouldn't do. And so we looked at a lot of that last time. We won't go through all of that again, but we will do a brief review in a moment. And, and then after we finish up the major ways that the Lord uh, uses to provide us with what we need, we're going to move on to some minor ways that the Lord uses and then go over some ways that you can receive material things that the Lord forbids. So that's the outline for today, and we're going to, uh, Lord willing, get to that, all of that. And then we're going to look uh, next week, Lord willing, at wealth in my family, which really deals with how to get yourself on the right course. So as we've gone through all of these things, if you find that what your experience is, it's God's plan for your security and your provision, is not really happening for you, and that you can't see how you could possibly do the things that Scripture says, then that might mean that uh, you're on a tangent away from the line the Lord would have you on, and my desire for next week was really get you back on that line. And so once you're back on that line, then that takes us naturally back to Second Corinthians 8 and 9, which gives us the New Testament model for giving. And so that's that's our plan, to kind of consolidate everything that we've learned and then bring that into those passages with that understanding and that learning curve in place. And we'll be able to understand in total a biblical perspective of material wealth coupled with the model for giving. And these things really mesh together, and, and as you apply them in your life, you're going to be able to experience God's blessing in this very important area. And we saw... Uh, last time, that the foremost way that the Scripture prescribes for attaining of material things, and as I told you, this is um, not in order of popularity, it's work. Work is the primary way that the Lord provides what you need. Uh, more than 160 times, uh, in the New Testament alone, work is referred to as the disposition of God's people. And we saw a number of examples in the Old Testament. We won't go through all of those, but we'll go through a few of them because they really lay the foundation for everything else we're going to say today. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you saw uh, last time, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. Remember this? The Lord has finished his his creation. And then it kind of sums up, verse 2, it says, By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Three times relating to the creation narrative, God worked. And then he gave Adam some chores, and we saw in Second uh, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden 
to cultivate it and to keep it. And that sounds like work to me, just like it sounds like work to you. And the work was pretty hard. And we saw in verse 18 that God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. And so if you have hard work to do, you probably need a helper. And then after the saddest day in all of human history, the fall of mankind, we got to Genesis 3, verse 17. And then Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, we see very clearly in that cap, and we just that capturing that portion of scripture that there was work to do before, even in the perfect creation, the Lord had planned for Adam and Eve to work, and he wanted it cared for, and he gave Adam and Eve the charge of it, and then after the fall, there was a lot more work. Of course, they still have the charge of creation, and we looked at all of that a number of weeks ago, we'll go through that again, but the ground had been, the work had been frustrated because the ground had been frustrated, and now the work also produced, it was a lot harder work, and the ground produced things it wasn't supposed to produce, and a lot extra of extra work had to go into making sure that those things you needed were produced, and that's part of the curse of sin. But we can still say that the work that work is God's will, and we saw principle number one as it related to work, God gave us the example and we're supposed to follow it. So it's not a question of whether or not we're supposed to or whether we like it or not. God gave it an example and we're to follow it. And there's gain by work, we saw last time, and the best way to still look at work is it's God's gift to us. And we saw through work that there is gain, and that means there's there's means for provision for what we need and perhaps more than we need. So through work, God provides the provision that we need, perhaps more than we need. And we saw a lot of examples. We won't go through them all. But you can catch up if you're missing any of that on Berean's YouTube channel, Together in the Word, or on, on its official Spotify podcast, and you can read, you can hear those. And I would encourage you to do that. These are very important passages, and they provide some important instruction for us to help us understand why we see what we see in the culture today and what can be done about it and our responsibility to model these things in front of our kids and in front of our uh, the world because that is a great testimony. So the Old Testament is full of instruction in this area, especially Proverbs. Uh, there and, and there were way too many examples to list them all. We just took a thin sampling. I'll just give an even thinner sampling today. But that second principle we saw last time as it related to work, is it's God's plan that we work diligently. So not just putting your time in, but actually working hard. And it's no surprise to us that he has a lot of negative things to say about an absence of diligence or a presence of laziness. And in fact, he uses things that he's made in order to illustrate both of those things, like slugs and ants. And and a great illustration we saw in Proverbs 6, 6 was this. Go to the ant, O sluggard. So uh, really two opposite ends of the scale, the slug and the ant. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then verse 11 says this, And poverty will come on you like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. And the third principle we saw, as we went through that section as it related to work, is the unwillingness to work hard can lead to a loss of jobs or can create a continuous shortfall. And we all know folks who are like that. We know folks who don't work hard, continue to go from job to job. We know people who are unwilling to work hard and end up losing their job or they don't make enough to bring in to cover what is needed. And so this is this can be an issue as it relates to work. And then Proverbs 13, 11, we saw this last time, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. And that fourth principle we saw last time as it related to work is lying or misrepresenting yourself or something in order to be enriched is not work and God does not bless that effort. And then that fifth principle we saw as it related to work, hard work is connected to wisdom and is connected to understanding. Just very simply, as you work hard and you understand you're supposed to and you understand that this is the primary way that God provides what you need, that is wisdom and that is understanding. And so the Lord uh, blesses that. And about work, we saw we can make several observations as we went through all the scriptures we went through last time. A couple of those observations are work is God's gift to you. We saw that. Work hard, that's equated with wisdom in the Old Testament. And working hard will provide self-respect. Working hard will bring productivity. Uh, Working hard will allow you to use your human talents and your giftedness 
in a way that glorifies God. In fact, as you bring that giftedness to the workplace and you're creative in the way that you do those things, you show that you're made in God's image by the very presence there and doing the work uh, that brings him glory. Working hard also keeps you from idleness, uh, wasting time and temptation, which can lead to sinful behaviors. Uh, today's protest culture is the perfect example of that. Uh, the example, uh, the absence of working hard can lead to financial trouble. Many, not all, but many uh, are in financial trouble because they don't know how to work hard or they spend unwisely or they refuse to give and to share or a combination of those things which work its way out into a shortfall. Now, we saw in Ephesians 4.28, uh, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather, uh, rather must labor, performing with his own hands that which is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. The sixth principle we saw... As it related to work, hard work provides for your needs and it gives you something to share. And that's a direct connection that we saw in numerous passages in the Old Testament. Early on, when the Lord put his people in the land and gave them the instruction to work, he instructed them also to share. And here we don't see any any slack of that moves right into the New Testament. Part of what you do provides something to share. And we saw in 2 Corinthians 3.10-15, through 15, as we mentioned at the beginning, Paul says of the church... For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. So Paul says, listen, I was with you. You heard this. If anyone's not willing to work, he's not to eat either. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. busybodies. Verse 12, now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as far as you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. and do not associate with them so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So very concentrated instruction as it relates to work, as it relates to what's the outcome of not working, what should be the outcome, both in you won't have enough, and secondly, that the church should take notice that you're not working hard and providing for your family, and they should uh, bring that to your attention. So these are very uh, important, instructive passages that tell us very clearly how to manage this and what it's supposed to look like. Work hard in a quiet fashion, eat your own bread. And so a very clear instruction to the church. Now, principle seven as it relates to work. Not working hard can lead to an undisciplined life. And we see a lot of that happening now, as I've mentioned. Not working hard uh, can make that happen. We see uh, the result of the previous eight years of administration where you have, uh, that's the case. It, 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 the, the increase in, in, uh, in uh, unneeded welfare over the last eight years, 44% increase in welfare payments creates an environment that's ripe for unrest, sinfulness, unruly, unmanageable people, people who can afford to travel around and make trouble because they're living off of someone else or a lot of someone else's. And so we see that. At, this is at work right now in our culture, in our society. And that's exactly what verse 11 says. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, and acting like busybodies. Unneeded welfare, reward, in other words, rewarding someone for not working, removes order from the society, Laziness produces chaos and all kinds of sinful pastimes. Work is the primary way that God has prescribed uh, that we'll have what we need. If we don't work, we don't have what we need. Very clear. And God's plan is not to harm people. And your instruction to your children, men and and women, as you raise them, you're teaching them to work hard. You're you're not being cruel to them. You're not being unkind to them. Teaching them that it takes hard work to make things happen and to do it diligently is to be a good parent. Be faithful in teaching your kid how to do that. And again, just as a footnote, based on scriptural principles, as we said this before, the best policy a, a country can have to promote social order is to keep the maximum amount of resources in the hands of those who know how to use it. So on the one hand, letting those who labor keep as much as their wage as possible so they can spend and share and generate work. And on the other hand, provide an environment conducive to those who employ. So in other words, lower corporate taxes, reduced regulation, so that people can have jobs. And biblically, the worst thing a country can do is taxing people at an ever-increasing rate so that to pass that off on people who will not work. Now, that's a fruitless endeavor. It just increases the problems, and it's counterproductive. And as you know, uh, there are people who can't work, and we're not talking about that. We're people who cannot provide for themselves uh, and perhaps work, but it's not enough to cover, and we understand that. And we're, I, I know that you're not, and I'm not against those, make, making sure those have what they need. We should. And the church understands that even better than any government agency. We understand how to meet needs, we understand what the needs are, and we can do that. Okay, so I'm not saying that that shouldn't happen, it should. 
So, again, it's God's will over and over. He's expressed it very clearly uh, that those who don't have what they need and can't provide what they need should be taken care of, and that is our responsibility. And then 1 Timothy 5.8 goes straight to it. Paul says to his son in the faith, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially of those in his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so we understand principle eight is it related to work. Not working uh, hard is a terrible testimony for the believer. Uh, but on the other hand, it, to embrace a biblical view of economics, principle number nine as it relates to work, hard work, working with integrity, no matter what the task, will receive great honor. And Colossians 3.24 is very clear about that. that. The Lord watches what you do. You're actually working for him when you work. And you are blessed. And the Lord has an inheritance for you, a blessing for you, because you did that. Now, we saw the second very tangible way the scripture teaches us to, how to accumulate wealth. And that's through savings. And one of the ways God provides resources for the future is through savings. Now, obviously, you have to work hard in order to bring something in, in order to be able to save something. So it all is based on working. And working is that's why we spent so much time there. It is primary, and you have to make sure that that's in place first. So when that's in place, there's a way that the Lord provides resources for the future, and that's through savings. A lot of illustrations in the second topic. We won't go through all of them. But again, Proverbs 21.20 very clearly talks about that. There's precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. Again, saving equated with wisdom. But a foolish man swallows it up. So just obviously, principle one, as it relates to savings, is what? Just like hard work, saving is equated with wisdom. A foolish person consumes everything they get. A wise person sets some of it aside. And here's some of their treasure and some of their oil and whatever they produce or bring in. So it has a direct application for today. A foolish person lives at the maximum level all the time, so there's never any left. In fact, we know that in 2019, the average American lived on a dollar thirty for every dollar that came in. So obviously, not living inside their means, creating a, a place where there's a continuous shortfall, not able to save for the future, not only that, but not able to provide for the present. So using everything up that comes in, and remember the ant, the Lord very clearly gave us this instruction from Proverbs 6, 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Here it is. Which having no chief officer or ruler, what does it do? Prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. Proverbs 30, verse 25. The ants are not strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. So principle two, as it relates to giving, or saving, as we saw, saving allows us to be prepared for the future. The ant is the example. We know that the fall and the winter are coming when no harvesting can be done. Setting aside that that uh, portion so that they can live on that, and the simple ant makes that illustration. They know winter is coming. They store up extra for the winter. And the analogy is save for a downtime or a time when you can't do what you once did or, or a time when you're ill uh, or save for a time when you'll have an opportunity to help someone who's having a difficult time themselves and you're able to meet immediate need or a time when you have an opportunity to advance the kingdom effort and you have something to do that or it's simply this. Wisdom is equated with someone who saves, which means they don't consume everything that comes in. It's very clear, very simple instruction. And there are ways to do this that don't honor the Lord, as we said. Uh, the goal in life is to be retired, to do as little as possible for as long as possible. It doesn't fit any, to any kingdom purposes that I can see. But Scripture tells us we're made to work. It also equates that with wisdom. So in retirement, both of those should be in play. There should be some save for the future. There should be some work associated with that time in retirement. And so there has to be a way to do both of those things, to save but not be dishonoring to the Lord, and to be able to work during that time, which brings glory to him. And so planning for the future and saving was also include things like savings accounts and health insurance and life insurance and short-term disability insurance and investing or a combination of those things, which will provide for time when you're down. Now, last time we ended with this third very tangible way that the scripture teaches us to accumulate wealth, and that's through planning. And in Proverbs 27, verse 23, we saw a very clear instruction here, and here's what it said. And this is a very instructional section. Uh, it says, Know well the condition of your flocks, and pay attention to your herds. For riches are not forever, no does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass disappears... And the new growth is seen, and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in. The lambs will be for your clothing, and the goats will bring the price of a field, and there will be goat's milk enough for your food, and the food for your household, and sustenance for your maidens. Now, it is an agrarian society we're referring to. But it's important to realize that what the general principle is this. 
You are planning for the future. You don't have it all right now, but you're making plans so that you'll have what you need when you need it. And it's just a very simple way of looking at it. So it's the opposite then of the impulsive, whatever works kind of way of handling family resources. Oh, I, we decided to do this this month, or we decided to do this, or we're not going to do any kind of savings, or we used everything up. That's the opposite of what we see in planning. Sitting down, being careful about what comes in, then being faithful to do the things you need to do. You know it's not always going to be there. You know you're not always going to be on the top of the pile of the CEO or the or the vice president. You're not always going to be there. You're not going to always have all the things that you used to have. Riches are not forever, but if you plan, you'll have what you need when you need it. The Lord it requires us to do that. It takes the abundance that comes from the Lord. And remember, it all comes from Him. None of that is generated by you. You do the things the Lord has prescribed in order for it to come in, but everything is owned by the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. So everything that you have is alone. But when that comes in, you take that abundance that comes from Him, whatever it is, rich or great or little, that's flocks and herds and riches and crowns, and uses, here it is, good stewardship to provide for the future. And we need to be aware that this is something you're going to battle against because the society that we live in really capitalizes on this impulsive type of sale. It's going to gobble up your money and advertising and commercials and well-placed items in the store. They press you to indulge in every imaginable thing. And credit cards are there so you don't feel the sting of the purchase so you can just rack up a credit card account and, and you don't have the money to spend and so you just spend stuff that the Lord hasn't even given you yet. But having a thought-out plan... Helps you avoid those kind of pitfalls. And obviously, again, principle number two, as it relates to planning, as with working, saving, planning is equated with wisdom. And failing to plan is equated with foolishness. And failing to plan is a very hard habit to break. Uh, People will repeat, here it is, and we see this often. People will repeat foolish mistakes with money over and over and over again and pile up debt and spend impulsively and to break those habits will require the fruit of the Spirit called self-control. You have to recognize, first of all, if you're spending the maximum amount that comes in and you're spending more than comes in every month, you are not using the spiritual gift of self-control. And you have to come and rein that in. You have to realize, okay, I'm living beyond my means. Something has to be, something has to stop here or we have to bring more income in, whatever it is, in order for this to happen. That we can plan and we can make sure that we have what we need. And again, as I told you last time, it, you know, failing to plan, it presumes on God's grace. And what I mean by that is this. You continually get yourself in trouble financially, and then you have to demand God to deliver you over and over again by foolish decisions that you continue to make over and over again. Presuming on God's grace is spending more than you make with a credit card over a long period of time. You know what you're doing? You're actually spending your income that, that God hasn't even given you yet. You're spending you're spending four weeks out paycheck instead of this paycheck. So these are things that have to be evaluated. Planning helps you do that. Very hard to break that habit, but it can be done. And so we want to we want to avoid those impulsive types of of ways and presumptuous types of sins that uh, ask God to overlook our irresponsibility or our self-centeredness or our foolishness or a combination of those things over and over and over and over again. So. To keep you from presuming on God, you need to carefully plan, work hard, save some of what comes in, spend less than you make, and you're going to enjoy whatever it is that God so abundantly and generously gives, and you'll be able to enjoy being able to give like that to see. Because once you get into a position where that's the case, then you'll be able to meet immediate needs. You'll be able to take care of ministry things. You'll be able to do those kinds of things uh, at a greater or lesser amount, whatever the Lord decides for you, and you'll be able to enjoy whatever God so abundantly and generously gives. You can help somebody out financially, you can support the local church, you can get involved with supporting missions, or go on a missions trip, or serve somewhere, because here it is, you're not trapped by too much financial obligation. So there is some there to do it. Now, let's look at the fourth very tangible way that Scripture teaches us to accumulate wealth, and this is new for you, and this is through investments. It's through investments. This very first verse is a reoccurring theme, so we're going to start there, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. It says this, it says, One who is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. So we're talking about investments, and that sounds like an investment, doesn't it? So this is the one that gets repeated most often in the Scripture, so I wanted to start with it. I realize it's not what you're thinking in investments, but we'll get to that portion. But here's the one that says, first of all, 
one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. So you're actually extending, putting an investment in those who have less than you. And who pays it back? Your investment's paid back by whom? Is it FDIC insured? No. It's the Lord insures it. And I think that's a great insurance, don't you? No loss there ever. The Lord insures that. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, this is an important passage, one perhaps you may not have read, maybe you have. Turn to, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Will you do that? In the wisdom literature, I think you'll find this is, very, again, very instructive, like the Proverbs passage by, uh, by Know Your Flocks. This is one of those, okay? Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1. I'm going to read that passage all the way through verse 6. So if you once you get there, we'll move on. This is one of the ways the Lord provides uh, for you. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, the bread is, is analogous to money or wealth. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. So, in other words, as you're thinking about investing, diversify. Make sure that there's more than just one basket that all your eggs are in. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. So there's risk, correct? No, no matter where you are in investment, there's risk. And you may be, you may be in financials, you may be in, in, in tech, you may be in, in research and development. There, there's going to be some risk involved in those kinds of things. And that's not foreign to the Word of God. And that's why uh, we have this instruction from Solomon to make sure it's diversified. When you're doing it, make sure it's spread out. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, whatever, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. So in other words, you don't know if it's going to rain or maybe it will. You don't know where it's going to rain. Uh, you don't know which direction the tree is going to fall. So there's risk involved. And that's, that's understandable. Verse 4, he who watches the wind will not sow and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. In other words, the wind's going to blow the tree down, but you're worried about the wind, so you're not doing anything. Or you don't know if it's going to rain or not, and so you're worried about that, and you're not doing anything. Scripture says don't do that. You don't know what's going to happen. Now look at verse 5. Just as you don't know the path of the wind, or how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. That's not an unusual thing, and it shouldn't scare you. Verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening. What's the main emphasis there? Work. Be about work. Be about generating the income so that you have what you need and do the job and do the investing and don't worry because you're not in charge of those things. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them will be good. Wisely investing goes hand in hand with careful planning. And I know many well-meaning ministers have said that this is gambling and you should avoid it. This, that's foolishness. This is a very clear passage. It tells precisely how part of your income should be used. This is not gambling. I mean, if you think, I mean, Scripture is very clear that there is risk involved in everything. The tree may fall north, it may fall south, it, it may rain, it may not rain. These are the issues that are always in play. And if you think about it, everything is a risk for the majority of the world who don't know Christ. Wouldn't you say? He could come back at any moment and rapture all the saints away. And if you think it's been a bad market before... Wait till that happens. So there's a bunch of risk always involved with that, okay? So principle number two is it relates to investing. Uh, with the best wisdom you can bring to the possibilities, make wise investments. Talk to someone who knows a lot about it. You know, make sure that you're, you're not violating your own conscience with what you invest in. You know, these are things that are important. But take a look at it. And with the best wisdom you can bring to the possibilities, make wise Investments. Now, the assumptions to this, and this is very important once you get this copy down, the assumptions to this are this. You have some money you don't need to live on. You have some money that doesn't belong to God, which means you've been planning and saving and working diligently. So we're not talking about what you need to live on. We're not talking about what you doesn't even belong to you should be given away. We're not talking about any of that. That doesn't go into investing. These other things have to be in play, see. Now, let's look at the fifth and really less common way that Scripture teaches us to accumulate wealth, and that is through gifts or inheritance. I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Will you do that? Philippians 4, verse 10.
So here we have an example from Paul again, and we see the whole gift and inheritance kind of thing come to play. The Lord provides for you this way. It's not foreign to the scripture, so I want to use it. It's less common, and so we want to make sure we, we uh, footnote it that way. But verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So he's talking to the Philippian church. Apparently there was some concern for him, but that concern hadn't made its way out into meeting needs, and so he's grateful for uh, their concern for him. And then he says this, he qualifies it, he says, not that I speak from want, in other words, not that I actually needed anything, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So whether he had a lot or whether he had a little, he was fine with it. So he wasn't saying, okay, I had to live at a certain lifestyle and it fell well below because you weren't taking care of me. Paul just says, listen, I didn't need anything. Verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So he understands how to live comfortably, whatever it is. It's perfectly fine at whatever level the Lord has provided. And maybe you're in one of those two. Maybe you have an abundance now. Maybe you have great need now. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever it is. And that's hard to do, but we talked about that before when we asked the question, do you love money? Would you be content to stay right where you are if you never change, whatever circumstance you're in, if, especially if it's very little or very slim, slim, would you be okay with that? And if you're able to say yes, then it's, you're able to say, I'm free from that love of money and the deceptiveness that comes with having a lot and thinking somehow you're insulated from disaster. And that's the deceptiveness of riches. If we understand both of those things, that we're not insulated from what the Lord wants to do to us and we're never going to lack, even though we have very little, you've come to the right uh, conclusion. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In, in other words, Paul says he doesn't need anything material. I can have it. I don't need to have it. I don't need it. Now, verse 14, look there in your copy of God's word. Nevertheless, so now he gets to the point that we're going to make. Nevertheless, You've done well to share with me in my affliction. So he doesn't want them to think he's not grateful. I didn't need anything, but you gave something, but I didn't really need it. It would make him think like, well, was it even worth it to give? Paul says, I don't want you to think that. Uh, I'm very grateful that you wanted to share with me in my affliction. I'm in jail, and you brought some stuff. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, so now you know the, the, the portion of Paul's life, the time stamp, he's left Macedonia, which is where, what we're studying now, and he's moved on. No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So not only I don't want you to feel like it wasn't important, you were the only the one the only one taking care of me. Paul says, I really, really, really appreciate your diligence. Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So he's recognizing that gifts have been sent. And it took care of his needs. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So here's that continuing theme that we see in the scriptures that it's more blessed to what? To give than it is to receive. And we understand Paul said that the Lord said that. We don't know where the Lord said that. We don't have it in the Gospels, but we understand that the Lord said that. And Paul confirms that here. Paul says, you, you, made, you met my needs. It was fantastic that I had this need and you took care of it. He goes, but even more importantly, I'm just so grateful that the Lord has been able to bless you through being generous to me. So, verse 18, look there, we'll finish this passage. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Three ways to describe gifts that were given to take care of Paul. A fragrant aroma, much like a, much like a sacrifice is to the Lord, that the Lord sees that and it smells good to him. An acceptable sacrifice, so it was the appropriate thing to do, and... The Lord is is thrilled that you did it. Paul makes, makes to make sure he affirms that what they did was right. Verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we're going to see that principle again magnified many times as we get to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That the Lord sees what you give, takes care of what you give, and gives it back to you abundantly. And so Paul just confirms that that's the case. So principle number one, as it relates to gifts and inheritance, God uses gifts to Bless us. He does. It's one of the ways that, th- that sometimes what we need comes in. It's, it's a less common way, but God uses gifts to bless us. And if you think about it, though, everything we have is a gift from him, isn't it? 
Paul accepted gifts from others to take care of his needs. Paul accepted gifts from the saints in Corinth to take as a gift to the saints in Jerusalem. But everything we have, if you understand that all of it belongs to the Lord, everything we have is a gift to us. That's the way that you praise the Lord for for the regular income that comes in. It should be part of what you thank the Lord for. Things come in, you you make a paycheck, you had a great sales week this week, or or you had you know whatever it is, and things were, were bigger than normally would. Just give the Lord thanks. That all comes from Him. That's all a gift from His hand. And there are more than a hundred occurrences of gifts given between people and more than 40 passages that deal with inheritance from one person to another in the scriptures. So it's not foreign to the scripture. And that's not even counting spiritual gifting or the inheritance that believers will receive from God through Christ. It's not counting any of those passages. It's actually talking about physical gifts and inheritance coming from one person to another and meeting needs. A few things to think about as you think about uh, this way that the Lord provides for us. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Again, just that encouragement to work hard, but also, uh, you know, creating this, this idea that, um, this, you know, deceitfulness, creating income by misrepresenting yourself, those kinds of things, that dwindles. Working hard increases it. Proverbs 20, verse 21, an inheritance gained hurriedly, in other words, that's another word for hastily, and it's implied incorrectly or unjustly. So an inheritance gained unjustly or incorrectly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. So principle two, as it relates to gifts and inheritance, you can see it right there. God looks at the heart and does not bless greed, and he doesn't bless deceitfulness. So just make sure if you're getting a gift or if you're or if there's an inheritance coming to you, you're not using deceitfulness and greed to accumulate it, because the Lord doesn't bless that. God dispenses inheritance. He dispenses gifts in his sovereignty. It may happen. It may not happen. It's one of the vehicles that he uses. It's portrayed in a very positive light in the scriptures, always in a positive light for the one who gives and the one who receives both. And keeping, you know, our main passage in mind, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, over everything else, you should be following God's instructions to you and what you should do with what belongs to him. And God has determined ways to allow us to get wealth. He's not against it. Now turn to Luke chapter 12. Verse 19, we're going to begin to wrap up today. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 19. It's a passage that uh, we have looked at many times, but I want to read it in full. So we've taken in a number of principles. They're very important principles on how the Lord provides for our needs. Now, this gives us an overview of pretty much how to look at it. And I like this passage. It is one of the most rich passages, and it's there's parallel passages all throughout the Scriptures. But it's very rich and very, and, and I think a ministering balm to your soul. So as you perhaps are thinking, I, my life doesn't align with this. I'm, this doesn't describe me. I don't know what I'm going to do. Be patient, beloved. We're going to get to the point where you can see how to, how to, uh, assimilate all that next week. And then as you assimilate that and put the Lord in the middle of that, He is able to make you about. He's able to take you from a place where you were in sinfulness as you dealt with what He gave you to a place where you can be blessed. And when God's in the middle of it, things happen. So don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. Listen to Luke 12, verse 19. Read with me at verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Who are we talking about? Remember, we talked about this about a month ago. It's This is the, this is the man who was very rich in worldly things, but bankrupt in spiritual things, right? In heaven, he had a big zero in his account, but he, on earth, he had a lot. He, the Lord doesn't... The Lord doesn't uh, uh, denigrate the fact that he was wealthy, that he had to build barns, and that he had to do all these kinds of things to take care of what he had made. That wasn't the problem. The problem was he wasn't rich in heaven, and that's where he was going to go the next day. So this is the tail end of that. But God said, verse 20, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Verse 21, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse 22, And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life. So don't be consumed with just making sure you're rich on earth. There's nothing wrong if the Lord provided you way more than you need. There is nothing wrong with that at all. Okay? You don't have to feel guilty that you have a lot and you don't have to, and you can't feel pious because you have a little. Okay? The Lord gives it in his sovereignty. And there may be real, many reasons why you have a lot and some of them might not be great. And there may be many reasons why you don't have much and some of those might not be great. So, don't worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Verse 23, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Verse 24, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, 
They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. Infinitely so, beloved. Infinitely so. And which of you, verse 25, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And what's the rhetorical answer? No one. If then you cannot do even a very little thing, so in the Lord's perspective, adding an hour to your lifespan is a very little thing. For us, impossible. Why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, verse 27, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Verse 28, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Verse 29, And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and don't keep worrying. Verse 34, All these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things, but seek his kingdom. Verse 31, And these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Beloved, he has much more in store for you than whatever it is that you generate on a weekly basis now. And your future is secure. Sell your possessions, verse 33. Give to charity. Make yourself money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven. Why is he saying this? Because this is precisely the illustration of the, of the rich guy who didn't have anything in heaven. Make sure you don't fall into that category, Jesus says. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, God is the source of all wealth. He owns it all. Whatever we have is loaned to us. And its uses always come back to a heart issue. And we want to be found rich in heavenly things, whether or not we are rich in temporal things. Now, as we begin to wrap up our time today, we're always looking... Uh, as we saw, where your heart is. And the idea of wealth always comes back to the heart. And we know from Scripture, uh, the ultimate source of all wealth, and we know specific vehicles God uses to dispense wealth to us. So what are some of the ways that we can get wealth that God forbids? And I think this is just as important as knowing how to get wealth in the way that God endorses. And we've touched on this just briefly already, but obviously, uh, number one, we're not to steal it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer, so in the imperative, but rather he must labor, so again in the imperative, you have to work, perform with your own hands what's good, again in the imperative, and then this in the subjunctive, so that he will have something to share with one who has needs. So the idea is, and there's a contingency there with subjunctive, right? If you work hard with your hands and perform with your own hands what's good, you will have something to share with one who has needs. Another one, will your own needs be met, you'll have something to share. And and you may say, well, I know we're not supposed to steal. But there's lots of ways that that occurs. Psalm 37, verse 21. Here's one. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. So if you're borrowing something and it doesn't end up back where you borrowed it, or you keep it and you destroy it and you don't give it back like it was. See, that's the way that you can steal. The Lord says you're not to steal. In Amos chapter 8, verse 5, here's another way that stealing occurs. When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? We looked at this passage a number of weeks ago. As we looked, as we fast-forwarded into Israel's future, the Lord told them how to manage their finances and take care of the poor. And then we fast-forward into the time right before captivity. And what do we see? Well, they're saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? In other words, we'll get to the point where grain is harvested and we can sell it. And the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market. In other words, you can't sell anything on the Sabbath. When will the Sabbath be over so now I can start buying and selling and making money? To make, here it is, the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales. So how many have gone into a restaurant and saw the picture and then got it on your plate and it didn't look at all like that, like it looked a lot worse? That's the idea. Doesn't look like the picture. You're making the, you're making the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and you're cheating with dishonest scales. So people are putting things on there, and it doesn't weigh, it weighs a lot more than you're saying to them that it weighs, and you're making money. That's a way to steal, see. So some of this way, uh, this is done, keeping something you borrowed, dishonest business tactics, cheating people out of their money, overcharging them for something. And then verse 6 in Amos 8 says this, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. So how soon can we do these things, see? So giving people a lower quality for a higher quality price, 
giving less than a day's work for a day's pay, that qualifies. You're working less than a day, but you're getting a full day's pay. Exaggerating deductions on income tax, that's a way to steal. Saying that you made less than you did, or somehow shielding it from uh, the tax man, because taxes are required giving for us. And if you're unsure about that, Romans chapter 13 will clarify it for you. So stealing money is not a vehicle God uses to dispense wealth. It's not compatible with being a believer, and there are many ways to do it. There are also some other ways to get wealth that God forbids. Number two, as we just kind of push to the end, number two, we're not to get wealth by charging interest to get it. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm just going to say this is all the way through the Old Testament. It's also called usury. And, of course, the normal response is, well, they don't like the interest rate. They can go somewhere else and get their loan, but that's not really the issue. Usury is interest from loans, not necessarily unreasonable interest, but all income from loans apart from principal being paid back. It's forbidden in a number of passages, more than we can look at, and you can copy some of these down. Uh, in, in Exodus uh, chapter 22, verse 25, Leviticus 25, 35, Deuteronomy 23, Psalm 15, Proverbs 28, Jeremiah 15, Ezekiel 18, 13, 17, and 22, 12, and, and I could go on. So what do I mean? Well, the exacting of interest is rebuked in Nehemiah chapter 5. The people come back to the land, and they go right back to doing this kind of practice. And the command applies here, here, between Jews, but we're going to see that it applies to anybody who identifies as God's people. Now, I want to look briefly at some of this so you can understand where we're coming from, because this is not a common thing that's taught in the church, but it's important. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25 says this. If you lend money to my people, so this is between people of Israel, you lend money to my people, to the poor among you specifically, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest, very clearly. Verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. So no interest, no security deposit between those who call on the Lord. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. Now, in the case of a countryman of yours becomes poor, and his means with regard to you falter, so in other words, someone inside of Israel doesn't have what they need. They can't make the payments they need to make. They're, they can't provide for their family. Something's happening, and they're having a hard time. You then are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. So in the Near Eastern culture, there's a, a lot of hospitality occurred. Make sure somebody has some place to stay. You see somebody who has need. You make sure that they're taken care of. So that's the opposite of what we saw in Amos chapter 8 verse 6, isn't it? Uh, we may, we may uh, buy and sell the helpless for money. So that's not the case. Verse 36, do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So no interest in advance, that's usur- usurious type of interest. Security interest, a type of usurious interest, which is harmful and abusive. And by the way, the Lord says, remember, this applies to items that are sold or swapped or loaned or whatever they need. And the Lord reminds them at the very end, by the way, I'm the one who put you in the land and gave you everything you have just in case you think you deserve this little bit of income off of what somebody needs. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19... You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, on food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. And then there's an interesting exception that's noted here. Mark this. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. So very comprehensive. Money, food, anything may be loaned at interest. And a high interest is especially egregious to the Lord. But here the exception is, if they're not of Israel... Or you can say, not a believer, there is some interest that can be charged. It's not, it's not, it's not wrong to do that, but amongst those who call on the name of the Lord, absolutely not. The Lord forbids it. And then Proverbs chapter 28 verse 8, very important. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury, so both are listed there, so, uh, perhaps a down payment, perhaps a security deposit that could be listed as usury, interest by itself, so you're making money on loaning someone something, whatever it is, gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. In other words, you're making money doing this, but all that money is going to be transferred to someone more righteous than you, and they're going to make sure the poor are taken care of. So it uses both words together, interest and unreasonable interest or security. Psalm chapter 15, verse 1. 
O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? How many want to be there? Sure. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So do these things get you in? No. Do these things indicate that you belong to the Lord? Yes. He who does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against a friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, so you don't think people who do wrong are great, but who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and does not charge, mark this, he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things will never be shaken. And so this appears... Beloved, as you think about, well, that was just Israel. Well, no, now we've moved into a general principle that applies to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And inside the church, there's much that can be done by way of helping someone, but it should never be done at interest. See? Because the Lord says that's not a way that he provides for those who call on his name. Charging interest to a brother in Christ is not the way the Lord wants us to acquire money. And so here's how it works. If you have the ability and they have the ability to pay it back, Lend it to them. That's perfectly fine. Not at interest, of course, but you can provide. And that provides a lot of opportunity for inside the church, doesn't it? And if they, uh, how about this? If they need it, and it'd be very difficult to pay it back, and you have it, what should you do? Give it to them. And I know many of you have done this. And I know I'm just preaching to the choir. It, if they can pay it back and they need it, lend it to them. If they can't pay it back and they need it, and you have it, Give it to them. That's so, that's so opposite of the way our society is, huh? You, you know, get all you can, put it in the can and sit on the can, you know, you know what I'm saying? That's exactly the idea expressed, and we saw this earlier in Proverbs 19.17. He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. When you give to somebody, when you have what it, it takes to meet the need, and you give it to them because they can't pay it back, who are you actually lending to? You're lending to the Lord. Who pays you back? The Lord. I'm good with that. I'm good with the Lord paying me back. He knows how to give good gifts to people, doesn't he? So this is very important. And now, just two more ways to acquire wealth that God forbids, and we're done. It'll be exactly four minutes. So, number three, defrauding someone. Defrauding someone. And it's a perfect New Testament illustration of that. James 5, verse 4. Behold... The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. How many have worked for someone who didn't get paid for the job? Many of us can say that they have had that experience. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and put to death a righteous man. He does not resist you. So, how can you get things the Lord doesn't uh, that the Lord forbids? Well, not paying what you owe, so that you are enriched because you didn't pay someone who was supposed to be paid. Leaving the worker or the contractor, beloved, listen, or the handyman or the trash collector or the mechanic unpaid—that is a huge no-no. That's a huge no-no. And you know, many people come to me and say, "Well, I'm going to have to file bankruptcy." Okay, I, I get it. Sometimes it happens. Now my question to them is, are you going to do your best to pay what you owe? Because there's no way you can slide out of that. I know what the legal system says, and certainly it's appropriate to protect yourself from further harm, but if you owe something, you should be doing your best to pay it back. Otherwise, you fall into this category. And you don't want to be there. Pay what you owe. Tip well, beloved. Don't try to get something for nothing. Pay the worker, pay the laborer, pay the employee. Be gracious, generous. Just like the Lord deals with you, so should you. See? And the last one we're going to cover for today, and we're done. Ways to acquire wealth that God forbids. Gambling for it. Gambling for it. Oh, but if I won the lottery, I'd give so much to the Lord's work. Really? What are you doing with the ten bucks you have now? Don't tell me if you won the lottery, you would be giving a lot to the Lord's work if you're not faithful in what you have now. Okay? That's not even realistic. If you're faithful in little, you're faithful in much. If you're not faithful in little, you won't be faithful in much. And I started our a whole series on the documented cases of people who have won the lottery and what happened to them. You will be no exception to that. 
But that's not the reason. The reason is this, and, and I leave it for last even though it seems like a biggie, okay? It's because we've already covered the fact that it's not compatible with being a believer. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 19 says this, He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. I don't think you can, I don't think you can take what we just said and kind of slide it out from under that verse and say, well, it still, it still applies. See. How about this? Proverbs 27.20, Sheol and abandon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of men ever satisfied. See, because there's no end to your want. And you're not going to satisfy just because you bring in a whole bunch from the lottery. Okay, there'll just be more you could do. Proverbs 20, verse 21. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. We saw that already. And once again, you know, uh, the whole the whole gambling thing has already been taken care of. We've already looked at it over and over again. But here's the thing. It, it wastes the resources that God has given you. It's a magnet for wickedness. The lottery system and everything connected to it is a magnet for wickedness. And we know this very clearly from the extensive research that's been done because we've had lotteries in states over and over again. Gambling, for the most part, exploits whom? Whom does it exploit? The poor. Of course it does. And are we supposed to exploit the poor? No. In fact, that's a big no-no in the Scripture, isn't it? It entices, and here's how it does it. It entices those with very little to start with and siphons off that money. And and you've seen this happen, and I saw it happen yesterday. I stand in line behind somebody, and they will spend $10, $20, $30, $40 on lottery tickets. And I don't know if they do that every day or if they do that weekly, but even if they only did it weekly, can you imagine if they took the $10, $20, $30, or $40 that they spend and they socked that away and they planned and they invested and they saved? what it would look like at the end of 20 or 30 years, they're never going to see that. Why? Because this hope that they'll hit it big and have no problems from then on always is there because the eyes of men are never satisfied. See, And so that's an attraction to those who have very little and then all of a sudden they go and they say, okay, well, if I hit it, I'm going to be very generous with the church. Well, beloved, if you're not generous with the church now, you're not going to be generous with the church. And if you're not generous with other people now, you're not going to be generous then. And man, every paycheck, you're taking that big knock. So, I know that's a lot. And as we close for today, maybe we went through these principles of working and saving and planning and investing in gifts and inheritance, and then the no-nos. And, and you looked at all of that and you thought, well, uh, those first ones may be true from the Scripture. That doesn't apply to me because we don't have anything. Or some of the no-nos you've been saying yes, yes to. Next time we're going to look at ways of acquiring wealth uh, and, and how to use and get yourself in line with um, how the Lord plans for you to do it. So we're going to kind of bring the two together. Wealth in my family. What do I do if I find myself in this position? And my plan is to do it kind of a Q&A format like we did. Do you, how do you know if you love money? And just ask yourself some questions. We're going to do it the same way. And then provide scriptural resources to help get you on the right track. And we're going to put them to work practically next time, Lord willing. And I hope it's a blessing for you. And let that encourage you. I hope that um, there is hope and that the Lord has uh, provided other chances for you to get this if you haven't been on top of it. And it's our blessing to, uh, to lead you through it. If you have questions about what we talked about, if there's some other things you need, uh, please don't hesitate to email me, text me. Uh, let me know how I can help you and put you in track uh, on track with uh, some things, some resources that are readily available online that I would recommend it can help you. All right? be a joy to do that. Let's uh, pray and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for our time to be in your word. We're so grateful for it and for how clear it is and how relevant. Thank you that it explains much of what we see going on in our society today. And as Daniel uh, talked about last week, it helps us understand that as well. Uh, with It shouldn't surprise us, but we can see some of the uh, symptoms of bad policy, and we can understand how we can, in, in your graciousness, because we live here, make sure that we vote in such a way that we don't repeat these mistakes. Father, I pray to your guide us in righteousness, you guide our nation in righteousness, give us uh, godly leaders that can guide us in such a way that the rule of law is upheld, that uh, we understand biblical principles become uh, basic economic policy that certainly leads to our good. Father, I pray that you'll shut the mouth of the wicked, those who are in leadership and are, and are very wicked, Lord, to bring them, uh, uh, bring them down, I pray, bring humility to them. 
And Lord, I pray that uh, as salt and light in our community, that we might be quick to share the hope that's in us as, and, and, and that we are encouraged by, that we might go and share the gospel. Help us to be aware of those situations where we might do that, and then help us not to be afraid. Father, you have uh, opened uh, the hearts and, and the ears of those who don't know you right now. I pray that you'll open our own mouth and your word, that we might fill those gaps by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the blessing of fellowship, for the richness that is part of what goes on here, for all the really wonderful things that we saw uh, in the scriptures just recently that go on here all the time, no doubt. Under the radar, nobody calls attention to it, but it's happening. We're so grateful for that. We give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said.